Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies, human beings, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quicken. When it comes to packaging, our addiction to single-use products leads to sending valuable resources to our landfills and pollution to our oceans. While no one wants to create waste, it is hard to purchase everyday products sustainably. My guest today, Tom Zaki, is the CEO of TerraCycle and the founder, a company that turns non-recyclable, pre-consumer, and post-consumer waste into raw materials that can then be used for new products. Under TerraCycle, Tom also founded Loop, a global reuse platform with the mission to eliminate the idea of waste in an approachable and accessible way. Tom, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Thanks for having me. Did I get all that right? Absolutely, yeah. I'm going to start as a ignorant consumer that probably overconsumes like the rest of us. I have long had this doubt and this suspicion that the guys every Friday morning who take my garbage and then all my recyclables really don't separate or care about my recyclables. Like I definitely question when it goes into that truck, is it really one being separated and sent to a plant that can then reuse these things, reuse these products. And or two, um, is it going to China and it's being destroyed there because China doesn't want our stuff anymore? I don't know. So let's just start there with my healthy, healthy dose of skepticism around the current system for 99% of the consumers. Yeah, it's a really, really good question. And there is quite a bit to unpack there. So let me uh, do the best I can in giving the sort of best way to think about the state of recycling. First, I think that there is a macro misconception uh, out there that recycling is there. Anything that can be recycled is what is recycled. And that there is a legal or moral obligation for recyclers to actually recycle what you put in the recycling. bin. And it's sort of the essence, even how you ask the question, right? The important thing to note on the entire state of recycling is that what gets recycled is what recyclers can make money on. And what doesn't get recycled is what they cannot make money on. These are for-profit enterprises. The companies that pick up your blue bin, they are for-profit companies that offer the service of, of recycling. And so in the end, what makes an aluminum can highly recyclable and recycled around the world is the aluminum is valuable. Valuable enough to cover all the costs of bothering to collect it, sort it, and process it, like turn it into sellable aluminum. What makes most objects not recycled is that it costs more to collect and process and the results are worse. So it's cheaper to destroy them, like incinerate them or send them to a landfill. Now, what happens in municipal recycling is that, you know, you are given a box, you're putting in a bunch of materials, you know, sometimes you're putting in what they ask you and you may put in things that you may, that maybe they don't ask for uh, you to put in. And that goes then to a sorting center in the nomenclature of recycling that's called a MRF, MRF or Municipal Recovery Facility, fancy sorting center, basically. And what you have there is people and machines pulling out from the waste what is today valuable to be able to sell. And that's the difference between what you put in your recycling bin and what actually gets recycled. They're not pulling items out based on their recyclability. They're, they're basically pulling out items that are both recyclable, but also monetizable. Yes. So I would say that the way to think about it is everything in the world, except some very exotic things, are technically recycled, right? Like they can be but only some things are profitable to bother recycling, right? So if you think about like our clothing to the glasses you're wearing, to most objects around us, they can be recycled, but cost more to do than the results are worth. And so what gets pulled out in recycling sorting centers is the things that are profitable to recycle. And the challenge that has happened in the past 10 years is there's huge headwinds to the general recycling industry 
is that it's becoming harder and harder to do that profitably. And the headwinds are oil prices being low, which drives the price of new plastic, right? So if oil goes down, this amount you can sell recycled plastic for goes down as well, make, making more things unprofitable to recycle. Packaging and products are becoming progressively cheaper, and cheaper means less value, right? To bother, you know, sorting for and processing for. And you had mentioned China, 40% of uh, waste from countries like North America, regions like North America, Western Europe, and so on were purchased by Chinese manufacturers to make products. That stopped in 2018, and that killed, if you're a recycler in Pittsburgh, you lost 40% of your end markets overnight. Now, I would say China did that for smart reason, and we can get into that if that's of interest, but if you were just a recycler in you know, wherever, Saskatoon, you lost 40% of your business overnight. What made you, as a Princeton student, back in 2001, I think, 21 years ago, what made you decide, you know, and again, 2001, I mean, it might as well have been 1910, right, compared to kind of where we are today. I'm going to create a company that basically is going to figure out how do I, you know, repurpose hard to recycle waste? Why? How did that happen? For me, like I, I fell in love with the idea of entrepreneurship at a young age in high school, you know, but to be fair, for selfish reasons, I figured it was my best chance to fame and fortune, you know, very egocentric reasons. And that attracted me to entrepreneurship. I mean, it is a way to achieve the American dream. But I had this huge turning point. You know, one of the first classes I took at Princeton was Econ 101, Introduction to Econ, you know, and the professor gets up on stage and asks a very reasonable question, which is, what's the purpose of business? Good opening question, right? And the answer she was looking for was, maximize profit to shareholders. And like, I get the role of profit, right? It's important, but I didn't feel like that's the God to serve. I was like, well, should, isn't profit more an indication of health, right? If you're profitable, you're going to flourish and grow. And if you're not profitable, you will do the opposite. But that the goal of business should be how it helps something, the environment, society does something good and then does so at a profit so it can flourish. And so that you know, led this perhaps utopian light bulb off in my head. And I was looking for ideas, you know, just as one may. I stumbled into the topic of waste and fell in love with it. And it has for 20 years really captured my attention because it is full of fundamental anomalies, right? Garbage, well, everything we possess with no exception will be property of a garbage company one day. That's a big idea when you really take it in. I mean, everything. And 99% of what we buy will be property of a garbage company within the year of purchase. I mean, that's a monumental concept, an industry that can... Wait, wait, 99% of, what, 99 of what we buy will be the property of a garbage company within one year. That's right. So that includes, when you say 99% of everything that we buy, it's everything from food to apparel to electronics. Yeah. To your car, you name it. Yeah, everything. Yeah. But think about your average quarterly shopping. And when you really look at everything that we purchase, it becomes true very, very quickly. Even the things we think are durable don't last more than a few years in many cases. And, and to be clear, you created a business, but it's a business that sits at the intersection of profit and purpose. It does, yes. And so waste has all these crazy anomalies, right? For how big that is, it is also the least innovative industry per dollar of revenue. It, it's got these strange things going on in it. And it's one of these like industries I found that are like totally woefully ignored, I think probably because it is literally gross, smelly, nasty. In many societies at the very bottom of society, it is the least focused on industry, yet it is sort of everything one day. And because of that, there's a huge amount of purposeful innovation that can be deployed because most folks are not thinking about this topic at all. And there's a lot to do well beyond just basic recycling, which as we said, only is going to recycle things that are profitable to recycle. 
I don't want to spend too much time in the founder's story, but I'm always fascinated. I mean, you basically had one job since you graduated from college. I dropped out, yeah, but yes. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. So you attended. We say attended. There we right? go. Yes. Plenty of geniuses who attended and then built amazing transformative things. We're going to add you to that list. But I'm still fascinated by people who have the courage to do that, have the vision to do something different, to take on something else that has a lot of stigma associated with it. Like you just said, people ask you, what do you do for a living? Like, well, and, and I, I believe you said earlier that you must have a love for garbage, which no one said ever, except for right now, right here on our podcast by uh, Tom Zaki. So that's awesome. How did you start out? And what did you do? How did you get funding? How did the spark get created? And then what was the major turning point where you felt like this was actually, no pun intended, a sustainable business that can actually scale? The very beginning was this idea of, I want to do purposeful entrepreneurship, like mission-driven. And this was, again, about 20, 20 years ago before B Corp and any of these things. And I was thinking, and then I sort of stumbled into this topic of waste. My friends were growing some plants, and they couldn't make them work because I started feeding organic waste to worms. And the worm poop, uh, or the worm castings, uh, more appropriately called, they were feeding to the plants, and the plants were doing well. And that lit this light bulb off. That, wait, they were taking garbage, converting into something good, uh, and, and producing an, an exciting product. And TerraCycle actually began as a worm poop company. Uh, so that, that was the very first thing. And we were taking organic waste, feeding it to worms, packaging it in used soda bottles, and then luckily got that somehow sold at Walmart and Target and all these retailers. And that's how the whole genesis began. We were a consumer product company trying to do our mission, which is eliminate the idea of waste by making products out of waste. And to your question... <laughs> I, just lo- I just love worm poop. That's awesome. Just out of curiosity, what kind of plants were your friends uh, growing? Ones that are, let's say, more legal to grow now than they were 20 years ago. That's what I assumed the way you said. Okay. Okay. We'll move on. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but what was so interesting is that, you know, to your question on when did we really figure this out was when we realized that we had gotten it wrong, which is we were making products out of waste. And if you make a product, then your business hero is the product, right? You're going to make the very best product. And even if it's technically waste, we were picking certain organic waste to feed the worms and not other organic waste because it would affect the quality of the fertilizer. And so we realized we were technically garbage, but picking the very best of it. And we'd never deal with things we do today, like dirty diapers, cigarette butts, you know, all sorts of really more challenging waste streams. So five years in, or maybe four years, give or take, when it was about a $6 million enterprise, you know, I'd left school by this point, we decided to switch the entire hero of the business from product to the garbage. And that's really when TerraCycle became what it is today and started growing. And you know, here we are now, you know, almost 20 years later. At the TerraCycle, the kind of the master brand or larger corporate entity level, your customers, it's a B2B business, right? So, and that was the major pivot, right? Garbage is the hero here, but your customers are basically uh, manufacturers um, and retail, CPG manufacturers for the most part, right? That's right. Yeah. Our very big chunk is, is we are a service or a platform to brands, retailers. We have a B2B division, uh, which is about a third of our business, which is more facilities, municipalities, but generally it's all direct to an enterprise. Uh, we also have a direct to consumer side, but the main focus is businesses leveraging us to create a circular economy, recycling or reuse solutions. Because consumers don't always see this when they're purchasing. Can you just walk us through uh, a little bit of a case study of uh, a customer of yours that uses TerraCycle? Certainly. Yeah, let's have some fun. Pick any waste stream you would like. Let's see if uh, we can do it this way. So pick, pick an object. Any, any waste stream. Uh, any, any waste stream. Well, let's go with like shampoo. Okay. So 
in, in the world of cosmetics, some cosmetic packaging is recyclable locally if it, if it is, say, like a simple PET bottle or something. But the vast majority of personal care products are not recyclable for the reason we said up front, costs more to collect and process than the results are worth. So in the case of, say, a cosmetic product, we go to a manufacturer or a retailer who funds the program. And then here's how you would see it as a consumer. If it's someone like, let's say, Garnier or Head & Shoulders funding it, you may hear about it through them. Like maybe it's on their package saying you can recycle through TerraCycle, or maybe you hear about it in their social media or what, somehow you've become aware. And you can go to their website or ours, join uh, the recycling program for free, and then they fund all the costs of picking up the waste from you, having it recycled minus uh, whatever the material is worth at the end. And that allows for a consumer out there to be able to recycle that product, even though it's not recyclable through their local municipal recycling system. Alternatively, if it's, say, a retailer funding it, like you can go into a Nordstrom's today or a L'Occitane en Provence or a Kiehl's boutique, just to name a few examples, uh, if you would pick cosmetics, and you'll see a TerraCycle box in there. You can drop off any brand of uh, cosmetic uh, package. And similarly, there we pick it up from the store, recycle what's inside, and the store funds, whatever it costs to collect and recycle it, minus whatever that recycled material is worth. So it feels like even more effort on the consumer's part anecdotally and and not maybe even uh, quantitatively how have you seen positive amounts of compliance to ensure that this is actually taking place now maybe i'm just lazy although we have a house out east and they don't recycle uh, for this part of as you know in uh, in long island i bring my <laughs> idiot i bring my recycling home to westchester and then have the facility probably not recycle it here, but it's theater, right? But, but anyway, so, but my point is like, I'll go that extra mile, but are you finding most consumers now are willing to do that? Because that's a lot of it, right? It's compliance and motivation. And the answer is more than ever. So our thesis, whether it's with recycling or reuse, is the least amount of behavior change we ask, the better. We're always striving to make that process as absolutely simple as possible, whatever the extra is, as little uh, as possible, because I don't really think behavior change is an easy thing to do. But there are a lot of people who participate in the programs. Around the world, a quarter billion people take part in our programs through these various methods. It tends to be more women are interested than men. Young people uh, are very interested, male and female. And in some programs, they can get very large in, in scale, but it also has to do with the brands funding it to that scale. We need to have the brand appetite, the funding appetite to want to make it very big. And then we try to focus on how do we create as many convenient touch points as absolutely possible to meet the consumer where they are. So in one waste stream, we may be collecting in their retail environments, in their re uh, secondary retailers, in uh, mail-in programs, in all, you know, all sorts of different ways to give as many choices to people out there as possible. And while we never collect 100% of a category, some of our programs can get up to 50% of all products produced come back. And that really depends on those particular variables. So you get these products, right? What happens then? Where do they go and what do you do with them? And how do you give them new life? Sure. So I mean, today we operate nationally in 21 countries. And uh, so every country has at minimum one, but typically more check-in facilities. Around the world, we have 35 of these check-in facilities. So the waste first comes from, say, a retail environment, or if you went to the TerraCycle website and downloaded a shipping label, a mail-in program goes to one of our check-in facilities. There, we check it in and aggregate the material. And then from there, our team of researchers here figures out what are the ways to process these waste streams. So we invented how do you recycle a cigarette butt or how do you recycle complex cosmetics, et cetera, et cetera. Then we find processing partners. These are you know, factories that can implement our technology. And then uh, uh, we finance them to be able to recycle the material. And the outputs are typically sellable raw materials, not finished products, but like uh, metal ore or paper fiber or plastic pellets 
And then those are sold to manufacturers who then use those inputs to make new products. And that completes effectively the recycling loop. Hence a circular economy, or that's what we're looking for. It's the widest circle. Yeah, absolutely. In the circular economy. So TerraCycle focuses on recycling and recycled content, right? So either a company works with us to make their objects recyclable or works with us to integrate waste to make their products from waste. And that gets a linear economy to bend into a circle, but it's not the end point, right? The, uh, the next step would be then moving from uh, disposable systems, where the best thing to do is recycle, to reusable systems, where we're not shredding and melting, but perhaps cleaning. And then, of course, important to note, the only thing better than any of that is reduction of purchase, right, which is a non-business function. At the end of the day, the real solution to all of this or the, the issues over consumption, and we're all guilty of it. Probably you less than me. I'm guilty too. Uh, but I can see that you, you, but you probably use a lot more hair product than I do because you have like beautiful hair that no one can see and I have no hair. I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> Besides that. <laughs> um, I will say a, a funny uh, joke. I mean, I, uh, I've stopped using, uh, my only cosmetic product literally is toothpaste and a bar of soap. I'm also guilty though, right? We all are. And I think what's so important in this entire journey around sustainability is sustainability is very complicated. You know, there's many times it's hard to connect what it, why is eating, you know, something with palm oil, you know, going to link to an orangutan not having habitat? And there's so many issues, species diversity loss, uh, deforestation, you name it, right? Garbage just being one of the many. But there's one sort of distilling element in all of this that makes it very simple is I would argue every environmental issue in the world, we vote on daily by buying things. And in fact, I don't think there is a good purchase. I think there's just less bad purchases. And yes, we should choose the less bad than the bad, you know, like eat uh, plant-based protein instead of animal protein. But no matter what, if we didn't buy that object, that farm would have been a forest. And yes, we have to feed ourselves. But if you measure it, in the past 70 years, our aggregate consumption per person has gone up tenfold. And then you multiply the human population growth. That means our species is consuming 100 times more stuff today than 70 years ago. It's a little upsetting in many ways. What I find interesting about your model is it's not shame-based, right? We all know that shaming people into things does not work, whether it's a vaccine or it's consuming less. So instead, it sounds like you're using both you know, technology, education, advocacy, and, and a little bit of inspiration to get people to be more participatory in the solution, right? And it's baby steps because it has to be incremental over time. I think that's right. And I think that your point, I think there's two very important things. One is exactly what you said is you can't use a stick to get people to move. It's a very uncomfortable way to create progress. Using a carrot is way more exciting for all stakeholders. It also has to be convenient, simple, right? Easy to execute to your earlier point. And the thing I would build on this to anyone listening is that it's not just to the consumer, the human being at the end, but it's also to any corporation you're trying to convince in the process. It has to be ideally driven by carrot and convenience, those two things. And that's how you get the biggest change as quickly as possible. And this is important for, the, for sustainability practitioners because it's not the default position many times. Um, I'll give you just a, an interesting story. You know, we, were, we had created diaper recycling technology like 15 years ago. And it was very hard to convince the diaper companies to adopt it because they saw it that, wait a minute, if we fund diaper recycling, the bigger it gets, the more costly it gets. And I was like, yeah, but 3% of landfills are diapers. And they're like, we agree, we get it. But it's very hard in our roles to approve that. And if we leave our chair and we fought for it, someone else will come in and say, where is the value on a PL and maybe cut it. Then when we reframe diaper recycling to you know, brand X, that this is how you can gain market share by doing the right thing. It's not like you're going to buy more diapers, but maybe you'll buy brand X versus brand Y. Then it launched and it's now live in three countries. 
And that's the difference. When we first went in, we went in saying diapers are 3% of landfills. That's coming in with a stick, right? And then when it was like, if you invest in diaper recycling, you can really beat your competition versus buying marketing. That is through Carrot, and it actually worked. And off we go. You're going back to your original point where you're aligning economic incentives with sustainability goals, right? So it's a win-win for everybody. Just out of curiosity, what takes up most landfills? What's the highest percentage? Is it diapers? Is it Yeah, it depends on the region of the world, right? So if you're in an emerging region, then it's going to be mostly organics, right? Like food waste and such. If you're in a wealthy country, it's going to be relatively little food waste and it's going to be more uh, products and packages, right? Products that break in packages and so on. That composition will really depend on the wealth of a market, you know, and then you can single out certain things, you know, like, yes, diapers take up a big percentage or cigarette butts are the most littered waste stream. You know, if you look at roadway litter, each waste stream may have a slightly different sort of place it shows up in that sense. But the interesting insight is that People are emotional about this and not objective, right? We crucify a straw, and I'm not saying a straw is good, right? It probably shouldn't exist, but it it has next to no actual effect relative to other things like fishing nets that we hardly hear about if you're looking at ocean plastic, for example. Yeah, because somebody, you know, I don't know where associated the straw with, I I think it was turtles. I can't remember. There was a trending thing, right? Like there was a trending piece on social media of someone pulling a straw out of a turtle's nose. It was a really sort of horrible video that got a lot of people engaged. And, but it's important to note that there's these sort of things in the waste movement that are like emotional triggers, right? Like coffee capsules, cigarette butts, diapers, straws, plastic bags. Those are examples of waste streams that had these emotional triggers attached to them. And you see these huge movements. And then like waste is out of sight, out of mind, Some of these huge examples, like probably close to about 50% of all fishing nets are thrown overboard instead of someone paying to dispose them on land. Like imagine if you're a fishing vessel and you have the choice in this huge ocean of throwing your fishing net overboard, which mind you causes phenomenal destruction. They end up becoming dead nets where people, you know, uh, fish get trapped and so on. It's horrible, horrible. Or now it's economics. You could do that for free or you can take it back to land and pay to have it properly disposed on land. You could see why the economic incentive pushes for this really horrible behavior. And this is the key thing to really center in, I think, on circular economy is economics drive the process. Similar example as to why compostable packaging is such a challenge. Many people think it's a wonderful thing. And it's true. It does compost. You know, if it's home compostable in a home setting, if it's industrial in an industrial setting. But retailers like Tesco, largest retailer in the UK, banned it from their shelves a few years ago because it turned out while that is all true, The actual companies who have to do the composting, in this case, the industrial composters, do not want it and sort it out and burn it instead of composting it because it drives their economics downward. And this is so important to center on that all of the circular economy action is driven by economic motivators. And you need everybody to be aligned. You need all those interests to be aligned. Well, so then this goes to this question of open loop versus closed loop, right? So recycling is what one would call an open loop, where let's say you're a manufacturer, you sell to a retailer, retail sells to a consumer, and then consumer puts in their blue bin. All those actors are not legally responsible to each other. It's an open loop. The recycler can do whatever it wants, and there's no moral or legal lever saying, no, what goes in that bin must be recycled. There's none. In a closed loop environment, this is where reuse gets much more interesting. It's one actor who runs the loop so they have a much easier way to control all those pieces and be motivated to make sure the circle actually occurs and you don't get the spillage that occurs a lot in traditional recycling. You know, we haven't talked about kind of the regulatory aspect of this, whether it's open or closed, but even more so in open. It strikes me that our our legislators, our lawmakers also need to become probably more active and more involved. What would you like to see happen 
you know, it, the good news is in the past few years, it's happening, right? So what I would like to see happen is first EPR, which is extended product responsibility legislation, be passed. And it is. It just came in Maine. It's coming soon in Oregon, state by state here. But this is basically packaging taxes, where if you make a product, you have to pay into this fund in the state or federal level. And then that goes to boost recycling and make it easier to do profitable recycling. There's DRS, which is called deposit return schemes. In the US, you would call that a bottle bill, where you put a deposit on a pack, which you get back when you recycle it at a store that objectively increases recycling rates. These are wonderful examples of legislation. And then the third is banning certain things, like just saying no straw, no bag, you know, these, that, that also helps. All these things nudge towards more uh, profitable circular economy deployments. What about wipes, both flushable and non-flushable? Is that just a lost cause? Like a surface wipe or a baby wipe, right? Either or. I mean, they're, they're obviously very popular and they're creating havoc in all sorts of sewage and sewer systems as well as people's septic system. Yes, yes, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and look, the very first question to ask on any product is, do you need it? Now, if you say, I really need it, then uh, wipes are challenging because they today are not locally recyclable. You know, so we do have some wipe recycling programs with brands like Swiffer and others, but the key would be designing into local recyclability. If you cannot, yes, use a service like ours, but it still recovers, you know, relative, that's a relatively newer program, a small percentage relative to the scale of the issue. And so the goal, I think, is if you really need the wipe, right, is to think about how do we encourage companies to do more of their own responsibility programs uh, while, uh, let's say, municipal recycling does not accept them? And then what legislation can come onto the scene that can help make it easier for municipal recyclers to profitably recycle these things, which comes in one way only, subsidy. There's no other answer. And then the third is, are there ways to design out of the disposability of a wipe and move to things that are more reusable, you know, similar to mending our shirt instead of buying, throwing it out and getting a new one, you know, or, or those sort of models? I, uh, years ago, I don't use K-cups anymore, or, but it may, might have been Nespresso. Maybe you, you guys are behind this, but they'll send you a bag. That's us. That yeah. says, hey, that's you guys, right? And I thought that was really smart. And from a consumer behavior standpoint, all it means is that in my garage, like I have a bucket, you know, in my kitchen, and then I move it to the garage where I have the bag. And once it gets like three quarters, I just flip it over and I just drop it at UPS or FedEx, I can't remember, or maybe it was USPS, I don't remember. But to me, that is a great example that people can, can, uh, can recognize it in everyday use. Yeah, exactly. And you just described a very, you know, classic sort of TerraCycle program type. You know, some people like yourselves like the mail-in system. Some who may be buying, say they're in, in that example, their Nespresso capsules at a store may like it to be dropped off at a retail environment. So it's also important to meet people where they are. And have many different ways that people can access recycling because the more accessible and convenient we make it, the more people will participate. How do companies like Amazon, which seem to have you know, never-ending growth, in many ways contribute to the problem? How can they be a better partner to the solution that we're talking about? I think you know, it's a good question. I think it's, it's uh, two big things come to my mind right away for retailers, right? One is retailers have a huge opportunity to edit what they sell. Because in the end, like, if you take our vote of purchase as a vote for the future, right, by spending our money, brands produce the candidates, but retailers say who can be on the stage and amplify them. And so the retailer has a huge opportunity to edit out the bad and amplify the good. Now, some retailers do that really well, and some maybe do it as guidance, and some have no position on it whatsoever, right? But the more they can be fierce and say, we will no longer sell this, and we will amplify this other thing that is more circular and less linear. You know, so to me, that's a huge role of the retailer. 
And then the retailer can also be a cog, if you will, in the circular economy supply chain by thinking about how to be a point to which you can send back goods for recycling. So not yet with as many digital retailers, but many physical retailers, about probably a million stores, you know, at any given point in time, you'll see a TerraCycle collection bin at the front of to collect and recycle certain appropriate waste streams to that retailer. It could be pens and pencils with staples, you know, uh, in Canada, could be uh, car seats with Walmart and so on and so forth, right? So that's how we see retailers playing. But I think that opportunity to edit is very powerful and underutilized and then, you know, play a role as a partner physically. Or if it's digital, like, is there a way that they can take back the goods and uh, have them be recycled? It seems to me, uh, again, uninitiated here, that the business that you started is pretty capital intensive, and it probably still is today. How did you find the resources from day one to get this off the ground? And how long did it take where you were bootstrapping, if that was the case, before you became you know, cash flow positive, or at least cash generative, to be able to sustain yourself? Yeah. So, you know, all right, the idea for TerraCycle came up really in 2002. You know, we incorporated 2003. 2004 would be our first year of invoice. And we became profitable 11 years later. It took time. 2015 was our first year of profitability. <laughs> I, I am laughing. I, I just want to be able to use that as like, I love that quote. And we became profitable 11 years later. Right. I think it's important because we look at like all these like dot com, this and that, you know, you know what I mean, right? All these apps and stuff. And it's like instant success and all these unicorns. But like, this is hard work. Well, and this is, the, this is the thing, like circular economy and especially waste management is physical, right? You have to set up physical movements and it's not a magical app that is going to achieve it. Like you take a phenomenal growth story like Uber, it's basically a killer app that did it, but there's no, I mean, now there is, but at the beginning there was no infrastructure, like no physical anything had to be built. Well, if there's no GPS, there's no Uber. That's right. That's right. Well, that's fair, but it wasn't paying for it, right? It was able to leverage it. Here, we had to build a lot of that. We also had to figure out, you know, a lot of the ways of how to do this, you know, uh, how do you get collections to occur safely? How do you entice people to do it? How do you process it? How do you get people to want to fund it, want to do it consistently, and so on and so forth. And that's been really the art of figuring this out. What I will say, though, it's, it's exciting because there's so many unique anomalies, as, as we mentioned at the beginning of our discussion in waste, that are absolutely unutilized. I'll give you just an extreme example to push the envelope a bit. So we're launching a new division out of our incubator, uh, which is called TerraCycle Diagnostics. And Diagnostics has the thesis that certain waste streams carry diagnosable samples. So think like your air condition filter. It's there filtering out the crud in your air. Would you be interested in paying a fee and have that sent in to a laboratory to analyze what's floating out in your air? It's perfectly capturing it. Or your child's diaper carry, captures a perfectly pure fecal sample. And there's many other examples of this, not for all waste streams, but there are many that actually carry a perfect to diagnose sample. So that's an example, new model that you'll see launching out later this year, which is sort of combining the concept of 23andMe meets your waste. Meets your, actually, you, you might be able to spot a pandemic before it becomes a pandemic, because you might have been able through waste, through poop, know that there is this, you know, COVID-19. You very well could have. Uh, and diagnose it. Yeah, you know, and there is right. now, like, I, I've heard anecdotally that there is, you know, cities are using sewage to test for COVID. But with enough, yeah, it's, it, I, this is just embryonic at the moment, but with enough people doing it, you can get some pretty interesting readings. Like imagine if we had the air filter samples of, an, of a country, you could start picking up where are there high, low qualities of air, high qualities of air, what areas are more susceptible to mold and mildew. And that's just air filters. You know, you have water filters, you have the blood on a feminine hygiene product, fecal matter from diapers. You, there's, it's so interesting, but 
You could see here, none of this was ever looked at in the world of waste because waste is such an undesirable topic to begin with. Yeah, and as long as you can you know, aggregate that data in a non-identifiable way, it can be incredibly powerful for communities and public health. That's right. Just quickly describe Loop. It's a division of TerraCycle. Um, I didn't even know about diagnostics. That's super cool. But tell us about Loop. Yeah, so Loop is our third division. And uh, it has the thesis of how do we tighten the circular economy from a recycling-based Loop, you know, recycle your products and make them from recycled material, to a reuse-based Loop. So it's a much tighter process. It's a closed Loop, not an open Loop. It basically uh, allows you to buy your favorite products at your favorite retailers in reusable packaging. So Loop is a platform. And uh, companies join from McDonald's to Nestle to P&G and produce their goods now in reusable uh, packaging. So concretely, your, your Cascade dish soap now becomes really durable, reusable plastic, or your Haagen-Dazs ice cream becomes reusable stainless steel instead of, say, paperboard. Then you go into a retailer, like you can go into Kroger today on the West Coast or retailers all over the world from Japan to the UK and see a loop section in the store, sort of like an organic section, if you will. And you approach it, you can buy whatever product uh, you wish, except now in these reusable packaging forms, already filled, ready to go. You just pay a deposit on that package. And then when you're done, you return the dirty, empty package to any participating retailer in the loop system. We give you your deposit back, we take it, we clean it, and then it gets filled again and sold to the next person. And this way, there is no waste. And even if one day that package wears out, right, because there's nothing that can last forever, the material is just recycled back into the same package and allows it to go around another, whatever, 30, 40 times before needing to be recycled again. In practice, when I go to the grocery store, I might actually have my, uh, the bags I use to carry my groceries filled because I'm going to bring back those receptacles that held whatever product that I was buying. And then you'll take it back, you'll clean it, sanitize it, refill it for somebody else. And in the turn, I'll get new product as well. That's right. Yeah. So if you, um, you would buy it and then, you know, return it and then you would buy another em- a filled product off the shelf, right? And then return it when you want. And then loop is the waste management function of reuse. So we take the dirty packaging, we return your deposits, check it and sort it out, clean it. And then it goes back to the Nestle's and Procter's and Gamble's of the world who refill it. And then they sell it again to a retailer. And then the loop begins again. Uh, final question here. I, I always say that this is truly my final question. Most company founders have one or two people that are their ride or dies early on and or midway through. Who are those for you? And what were their functions? What were their roles? You know, for me, especially as like a young, you know, I started this company when I was 20. um, I've always had throughout the process, someone who is, today I call that my chief administrative officer, but it's, it's someone I can lean on, you know, ask questions, get advice, you know, run letters by before I press send, you know, like another voice. And has been around, you know, sort of the block and the next things that we're thinking of doing. So at the beginning, it was a different person and, and it was really focused. How do we even get a big company to even get a meeting with us? Today, you know, we are now getting ready into, I mean, uh, you know, thinking about an IPO and these sort of things. And uh, now it's someone who's, you know, done that sort of work. And it's someone who I can just have another sort of set of ears, you know, and also get mentorship from at the same time. No, no, I, I get it. I, I imagine when you're 20 years old and you're trying to start this company, it's, you might as well just try to start a band in your garage. You have that energy and that vision, but also a little bit of naive, naivete, of course, because it just comes because you're 20 years old. I mean, think about that from however many years ago. It, it's exactly right. And, you know, I was going to say that naivete is sometimes a virtue because then you try things that maybe at, a, at an older age, I wouldn't even dream of trying. But, you know, those like crazy ideas sometimes do work, right? Like, you know, I, I remember the first meeting we got at Walmart, which was our first purchase order back in the worm poop days. 
they wouldn't you know reply to our email so we just decided to and this was way before like technology today before linkedin but we would just we found out the buyer's number and called that guy every hour on the hour from a different phone for 30 days till finally we got the meeting and he said it was that passion that craziness that got it on shelf sorry so i lied so what, one last last question i probably I, I promise we had this incredible young woman on the show not long ago her name is claire coder and she started a company called ant flow and her mission is to be able to democratize and make feminine products as accessible as toilet paper because she believes that no one should have to pay for them and she too i think it was sophomore year dropped out of college and her parents i, I believe were not very happy and they didn't really talk to her for a bit but then they you know they came back around because they saw what she was doing what were your parents what was their reaction when you're like i'm going to do this and i love garbage but there's a much bigger calling out there for me and this is what i'm going to focus on what was their reaction you know, it was very similar uh, to who you were describing. You know, they were really, they're, they're both physicians. They really, you know, said, you know, you got to go through, get your stamps and ribbons, you know, from the, from the academic process. And I'm not anti-school. I love school. It's just, I found what I wanted to do. And so the first few years was like, well, I'm sticking it to them in a way, you know, like not, not, not in, in a uh, argument point of view, but I was like, I'm going to do whatever I want and I hope you're okay with it, but it doesn't matter what you think. And then a few years later, when they saw that, you know, I really was working hard at this and it was uh, working out, came around and became big fans of it. But it wasn't easy, that very sort of early moment, that, that, that sort of college dorm room startup, you know, potentially leaving school. It's a lonely moment. You know, you can it, it's romantic afterward, highly romantic, but I wouldn't live through it again, you know, or I wouldn't want to do it again. You and many others, like I said, at the start of, of the podcast. Um, but, you know, look. Being an entrepreneur and starting a business is lonely at first, and there's a lot of self-doubt. So I'm always um, incredibly impressed with uh, folks like you who have that vision, but also have the grit and the persistence to be able to carry forward and also know when to stop, when to pivot. At the same time, you know, you're building all these different divisions like you're constantly creating. So I'm so appreciative of your time. Congrats on all your success. And I can't wait to continue to track you guys and have you back on the show as well, maybe even as a publicly traded company. And uh, I am particular, I'm fascinated about the diagnostics application. I think that could potentially be even bigger and even of greater value to public health and safety than any of us can even know. So I think that's freaking genius. Well, thank you. And I look forward to having the chance to cross paths again. And maybe we should do a deep dive on how we can diagnose your poop. <laughs> I love it. Well, no one wants to diagnose my food, but uh, well, you never for another know. day. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Be well. You too. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful, purpose-driven companies, organizations, and people. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to our production team, including Maria Bias, Michael Grubbs, Anna Lamb, Haley Sackett, and Nina Valdez. Learn more about our show, sponsorship opportunities, and hosts by emailing BOP at kwtglobal.com or visiting aaronquitkin.com. Find us on LinkedIn and Instagram under Brand on Purpose Podcast. Hey, hey.